0: As a church, we're focusing on prayer, because as a church and as individuals, we desperately need to deepen our prayer life. Now, I don't mean by that we're terrible at praying. In fact, those of you who have been with us for very long, as a church, we've experienced some remarkable things in prayer. God has answered our prayers in exciting ways and specific ways. And there are people in our church who are really skilled at praying. And when we get to the part of our service, the prayers of the people, it's, it's a delight. We really pray. Our small groups, the ones that I've been a part of, prayer is a vibrant and serious role in these small groups. So when I say that we as a church need to deepen our prayer lives, I don't mean by that an insult about where we are. I mean that we need to cast out into the deeps, that there is more, that God is calling us, not in a general way, but God is actually, specifically, and personally calling the church of the incarnation as a group and us as individuals to grow more mature in our prayer life. This is the season where we are. This is what God is doing among us to deepen our life of prayer. So we're responding like the disciples responded to Jesus. We as a church are saying, Lord, teach us to pray. Now, the disciples, they already knew how to pray. They were raised in a culture of prayer, by by a community of prayer. They had been praying since they were children. And yet, when they encountered the quality and the quantity of Jesus' praying, their response was, man, there's so much more. Lord, teach us to pray. So in order to put ourselves as a church and as individuals in a position to learn from God how to pray more deeply... We're turning our attention to the book of the Psalms for this season. Now, God's people have always gone to the Psalms to learn how to pray. The Psalms were the prayer book of Israel. Look, there are a lot of prayers that were prayed and written throughout Israel's history, but 150 prayers were collected and passed on to God's people. Now, that doesn't mean none of the other prayers were good, but it means that there are 150 that have a unique role in the life of God's people, that have been uniquely set aside. Think about the irony. The book of the Psalms, it is man's word to God, but God has taken it and given it back to us as his word to us. It's a strange thing that's at play. The the book of the Psalms, it's, it's, it's the prayer book of Israel, and it's the prayer book of Jesus. Listen to this. Jesus learned how to pray from the Psalms. That's an astonishing thought. And not only is that, but it's been the prayer book of the church from the beginning. At no time in the history of the church had the Psalms not been the center of both individuals praying and the prayers of the church. When Jonah is in the belly of the well and he is at wit's end, you know what comes out of him? A mishmash of all the Psalms he's memorized cobbled together, not that he's plagiarized, but he put, that, that's, that's the prayer. That, where, had, where had Jonah learned how to pray? The Psalms. And you can go through church history and that's what you find over and over and over again with people who know how to pray. If you want to learn how to pray, to really pray, the tried and true method is to immerse yourself in the Psalms. Not for a moment, but for a life. If you're not a Christian, or faith is difficult for you, or maybe your faith is very tenuous, then I want to invite you to do something that's difficult and might feel intellectually scary. I want to invite you to suspend disbelief. Now, you do this all the time when you go to a movie. There are appropriate moments in life to suspend disbelief and enter into something. If you are struggling with your faith, then for this season in our church's life, I invite you with all of the energy you can muster, try to suspend your disbelief and enter into this season with us. Now, one more thing. Like I said, the book of the Psalms is a collection of prayers. There's 150 of them. We're only going to be here for a couple of months, so clearly we're not going to cover them all. Actually, we're going to cover 10. Um, we did two last week. Uh, this week we're doing a third one. And in the weeks ahead, we'll do seven more. We'll cover these 10 because what I've done is I've tried to go through and pick representatives of the various geographies of the Psalms. So in a few weeks, we'll deal with a psalm of confession when you've really messed up. We'll deal with a psalm at some point of suffering when life is dark. We'll deal with a psalm of love when your heart is enthralled with the king. We're going to deal with a psalm of doubt. We're going to deal with kind of the kind of representative tasting of the psalms in order just to try to get us on the pathway as a church and as individuals. Now, we're going to cover these ten psalms in different ways. Last week, uh, I kind of went verse by verse through Psalms 1 and 2. This week, it's, I'm not really even going to mention Psalm 8. I might at the end of the sermon. But Psalm 8 as a doorway into the praise psalms of Scripture. We've actually heard Psalm 8 exegeted already this morning. Paul's letter of Romans was explaining Psalm 8. Genesis 1 and 1, verse 26, Psalm 8 was explaining that. We've already set with it a lot. Now what I'm going to do is back up. I'll talk to you a little bit about that in a minute. So, let me just show my cards. The goal of my sermon this morning is to convince you that praising God is a type of prayer that you need to mature in. That's what I'm going to try to accomplish this morning. That praising God is a type of prayer that doesn't come naturally or easily. Like I said last week, it's a skill. And all skills require two things. A teacher and practice. Your teacher can be a book or it can be a, mentor, a person. But all skills are acquired through practicing and mentorship. And I'm trying to... My goal this morning is to convince all of us that as a church and as individuals we need to develop the skill of praising God as a type of prayer. So I'm going to ask God, Lord, will you teach our church how to pray? It's what I've been praying for us all week. And I'm also going to ask you to actually put this into practice at the end of, of my message. So my agenda is to convince you to set aside time. It's worth your while in order to actually practice praising God. Now, since I'm putting my cards on the table, one more thing. The way I'm going to do this this morning, the way I'm going to try to motivate us in this area is I'm going to look at the general subject of praise in the whole book of the Psalms. And what I'm going to do is I'm going to pick out four reasons we see in the book of the Psalms that we need to get good at praising God. So I'm basically, this morning, I'm not going to go verse by verse through Psalm 8. I'm going to go through the whole Psalter and try to establish a theology of praise oriented toward reasons you need to develop this skill in your life. Okay, turn to the the last Psalm, Psalm 150. If you have a Bible, look there. If you're near somebody that's got one, look on with them. If you don't have a Bible um, with you, I encourage you to bring one um, in the future. But, okay, Psalm 50, the very last psalm. I want you to look at the very last phrase of the very last psalm in the book. Let everything that has breath praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. By the way, in Hebrew, that last praise the Lord, that's hallelujah. That's the Hebrew, it's two words, hallelujah and yah. Yah is the word for God. Hallelujah means praise. So it's kind of a compound word, a single word. The last word of the book is praise. Praise God. Now go to the very beginning of the Psalms. Here's a kind of a trick question. The first page of the Psalms in your English Bible, what is the first word on this page? The Psalms. Amelie really got it. It's the title, The Psalms. Now that's the English title. This part of the Bible, like a lot of the Bible, was originally written in Hebrew. And in Hebrew, the title is not Psalms. It's Tehillim, which, liter- which translated in English means The Praises. What I'm showing you is that the first word of the book is praise, and the last word of the book Is praise. This book, it's enveloped in this notion. It's the envelope around the book. I talked about this in Psalm 1 and 2 last week, right? Psalm 1 and 2, the envelope around it is blessed be. And I said last week, that's like a clamp holding two boards together. The thing that holds the Psalms together is praise. Praising God. Now, that's a very odd thing. Because if you've spent much time in the Psalms, you know that's inaccurate. The majority of the Psalms are complaints. There are more complaints in the Psalms than praises. I mean, (laughs) the book is called Praises, but then you get into it and it's a bunch of laments and sufferings complaints cries and calls for help by helpless people who are hurting being taken advantage of, suffering one of the most significant psalm scholars of the 20th century his German named Hermann Gunkel he said that lament, complaint is actually the backbone of the Psalter, it's the thing that holds it all together so how can it be that the title is the book of the praises. And the last word is praises. Is this false advertising? You know, kind of like a smile on the front of a book that really contains a lot of pain and doubt and trouble. Just a sneaky way of getting you to, you know, like a spoonful of sugar, make some medicine. You know, if I can trick you that this is sugar, then you'll enter into it and it's good for you anyway. You know, is it that kind of thing? Well... Praises as a title is not statistically accurate, but it is accurate nonetheless. Let me show you why. Start with Psalm 1 and 2. We looked at this last week. Psalm 1 and Psalm 2 are about the type of person who can enter the the world of the Psalms and actually understand and live them out. It's the blessed person. Psalm 1, the blessed person is the person whose life is continuously open to God's instruction. The fundamental orientation of your life is that you are devoted to God's instruction. Psalm 2, the blessed person is a person who is devoted to God's Son. These two devotions, devotion to God's instructions and devotion to God's Son, this is what characterizes the fundamental orientation of a person who can actually really understand and live the Psalms. This is the gateway into the Psalms. That's Psalm 1 and 2. And then when you get to Psalm 3, the first prayer in the Psalter, the first prayer, the first line is what? Oh Lord, how many are my foes? The first prayer of the book is a lament. In Psalm 4, answer me when I call, O God. In Psalm 5, give ear to my words, O Lord, consider my groaning. In Psalm 6, O Lord, don't rebuke me. In Psalm 7, O Lord, my God, I'm taking refuge in you like a lion. They're tearing my soul apart. The first group of prayers is lament and complaint. And then suddenly you crest a ridge. And what do you see? You see Psalm 8 towering above you a psalm of praise out of nowhere an eruption of praise <laughs> you know if you're familiar with greek mythology this is like this is like athena springing forth fully formed resplendently armed out of the head of zeus just out of nowhere this mountain of praise jumps up in the midst of lament Psalm 8, verse 1, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You see, while the laments and the complaints are the most numerous prayers in the Psalter, praise frequently erupts. Uninvited. In excuse? I mean, there's no reason for it. Right in the middle of suffering, an eruption of praise. Look at Psalm 13, verse 1. How long, O oh Lord, will you forget me forever? This is a complaint, right? Have any, Mike, have you ever felt like praying that? Mike's been on a long journey. God, are you just forgetting the words you told me 23 years ago? Have any of you ever been there? And this whole prayer is this prayer of complaint. God, what's going on? Five hard questions put to God right at the beginning. How long, O Lord? Will you forget me? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I take count so in my soul? How long shall my enemy be exalted over me? And then after five hard questions put to God, three desperate pleas for help from God. Consider and answer me. And then it goes on from there. And then when there is no sign... That the, that the questions have been answered or the pleas have been responded to, out of nowhere, you get verse 5. But I have trusted in your steadfast love. My heart shall rejoice in your savior. salvation. I will sing to the Lord because he has dealt bountifully with me. Right smack in the middle of the desert of suffering, you have this eruption of praise. Like I said, this happens frequently. I don't have time. In psalm after psalm after psalm, praise erupts out of the most unlikely of situations. But there's more. That's one reason the book is called the book of the praises. There's there's something else. As the book progresses, as you start in Psalm 1 and you pray your way through the book, when you get to the 90s, not the 1990s, but like Psalm 90, Psalm 91, when you get into the 90s, praise begins to predominate. Now, it takes a long time to get there. It takes a lot of suffering, a lot of confusion. But in the 90s, all of a sudden, more and more like a trickle at first, growing into a tsunami, all of a sudden you start getting these praises. Look at Psalm 145, just to give you an example of how this thing starts changing. Psalm 145 is an acrostic If you could read it in Hebrew, every line starts with the letter of the Hebrew alphabet, all 22 letters starting with the first one. It's basically an A to Z kind of psalm. But the most amazing thing in it is that no line in Psalm 145 is original. Every line is either a quotation or a paraphrase of something from earlier in the Psalter. In other words, you suddenly get to Psalm 145 and there is an A to Z picking up, out and summing up of the praises of God that have gone thus far. You get a feeling in 145, all of a sudden we've turned a corner. Psalm 145, it's just incredible. Every line, every single sentence of Psalm 145 is a praise. It's A to Z of praise. But that As astonishing as it is, and it's beautiful, when you turn to Psalm 146 and 147 and 148, and 149 and 150 it's like the 1812 overture when I was one time I was playing in a symphony we we're playing it in in the in the room we we're playing this they had shotguns into barrels you know the 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 loud cannon sound it was it was mine that's psalm 146 and seven and eight and nine it's this cannonade last year for the 4th of July we were in DC sitting along the Potomac watching the start the fireworks that all of our taxes paid for and at the The end, it was like a riotous cacophony of fireworks. That's the end of the Psalter. Praise after praise after praise of God. It's the fireworks finale of praises. That's why the book is called the Book of Praises. But there's more. Go to Psalm 1. Look in Psalm 1. Just above Psalm 1, below the title, what does your Bible likely uh, say? Huh? Book 1. The Psalms are divided into books. Now go to Psalm 42. What does it say just over Psalm 42? Book 2. And if you turn to Psalm 43, Book 3. And Psalm 49, that was 73. And then Psalm 90, Book 4. And then Psalm 107, Book 5. Now look, the Psalms are divided into five books. There's another grouping of five books in the Bible. It's the first five books of the Bible. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. The Jews call these the Torah, which means God's basic instructions. The Torah is called the law of God or the law of Moses. The Psalms are the instructions of David. So for every book of God, there are five books of prayers in response to God's work in our life. Now, let me show you something remarkable. Look at the last psalm of section 1, Psalm 41. The last psalm of the first book of the Psalms. And look at the last phrase of the last psalm of book 1, Psalm forty-one, thirteen. Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, from everlasting to everlasting. Amen and amen. End of book one. Then book two starts. And look at the last phrase of book two. It's Psalm 72, verse 18. Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, who alone does wondrous things. Blessed be His glorious name forever. May the whole earth be filled with His glory. Amen and amen. Now look at the end of of the third book, Psalm 89. Last phrase: Blessed be the Lord forever. Amen and amen. We could go to Psalm one hundred six, the last of Book four. Psalm one hundred six, verse forty eight: Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, from everlasting to everlasting. And let all the people say, Amen and amen. Now look at the last, book, the last phrase, the last Psalm of Book five is Psalm one fifty. And this one, it's not just the last phrase, it's the whole psalm. This psalm concludes book 5 and concludes the whole book. Praise the Lord. Praise God in His sanctuary. Praise Him in His mighty heavens. Praise Him for His mighty needs. Now look, what does all this mean? It means that while your life may not be most characterized by praise, you might be living a life like the people of Israel. The most frequent prayer they prayed was a prayer of complaint and lament. They were realist. And the people who edited this book suffered life like you do. But they still put the title on the book, The Book of Praises, because they knew that while statistically this is inaccurate, it is accurate nonetheless, because get this, praise is the end. It is the finished product. What I mean by that is the book of the praises is the only accurate title because it gives the goal of all praying. The end of all praying, of all real praying, even prayer in the pit, is praise. Praise is the end of the journey of prayer. What's going on here is that the editors of this book gave this book the title praises because they were making a point about prayer and about human life. Praise is the goal of the book, just like it is the goal of human life. Now, all prayer pursued far enough ends in praise. Any prayer, no matter how desperate its origin no matter how angry and fearful the experiences you suffer and turn into prayer, all prayer ends in praise. Now, I don't mean it gets there quickly. <laughs> Sometimes the trip can take years for a prayer to turn into praise. When Janelle and I lost a child in Korea, through a miscarriage. Our prayer didn't turn to praise quickly. Some prayers take a lifetime to turn into praise. I mean, that, this book is realistic. There are prayers in this book that, that never get to praise. But they're a part of a book that gives a context to a way of life you see if you're if you're the kind of person who fundamentally or is oriented toward God's instruction and God's son you will discover that all prayers no matter how long they eventually end in praise and that life no matter how hard no matter how dark no matter how difficult and morose things are all life pursued well and rightly will end eventually in praise, That is the Christian hope. That's the theology of the Psalter. And it's one reason that you and I must immerse ourselves in the school of the Psalms. Because God in his wisdom knows that left to yourself, you might not get there. Because you might not want to get there. Or even if you want to, you might not know how to get there. You must enroll in the school of the Psalms because praise is not always easy, but it is the goal that shapes the whole journey of prayer. It's the reason we ask children, what do you want to be when you grow up? Because your destination is far more powerful in your life than your origin. Look, the Bible only spends a couple of pages on the beginnings, but the whole rest of it is about the destination the destination is far more powerful. That's why we have to be so careful about the songs we sing and how they describe the destination because it is so shaping in our lives. Because ultimately, it is not your family of origin and your DNA that controls your destiny. There is a more powerful reality. In our prayer education, God knows that we need the discipline Of the praise prayers. Now, that's the first reason I beg you this week and for a lifetime, but this week to enter into a season where you pray the praise prayers. I beg you to because it is the goal. And you need it shaping influence in your life along the way. A second reason that we need to praise. A second reason that you need to develop the discipline of praise prayers is because God deserves it. Now, I'll not spend much time there because I don't feel like I have to convince you of this. I just want to put it in front of you to remind you of it. Look at Psalm 24. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. By the way, that fullness, that's a direct quote from Genesis 1:26 and 27. Fill the earth. Everything we've done to the earth belongs to God. The earth is the Lord and all the filling that humans have done. All of the development we've done. It all belongs to the Lord. The world and those who dwell in it. For he has founded it upon the seas and established it upon the rivers. Look at verse 8. Who is this king of glory? The Lord strong and mighty, the Lord mighty and battle. God deserves our praise because God made it all and He owns it all. Look at just a few to the right. Psalm 29. Ascribe to the Lord, O heavenly beings. Ascribe to the Lord the glory and strength. Look, even the angels should praise God. God deserves it. Verse 2. Ascribe to the Lord the glory, do His name. Worship the Lord in the splendor of holiness. God deserves. Praising God is what people do who know the truth about power. Some people are so burned by lesser powers that they've lost the ability to praise God. But people who know the truth about power, they praise God because in the Lord they know true power, the power that creates and saves. That Psalm. Look at Psalm 33 verse 1. Shout for joy to the Lord, O you righteous. Look, not O you who feel good, right? Not O you who everything in life is well. But if you're righteous, shout to the Lord. Why? Because praise befits the upright. Praise is fitting. It's what you were made to do. It's not that God has some ego issue begging your praise. It's that it's the best thing for you. Just like certain tools fit certain tasks. And you know, what if somebody has a Lamborghini and they use it to pull a cart through a field? That's not fitting for an incredible feat of human engineering. We praise God because he deserves it. We need to deepen in our prayer life by growing in our skills with praise because God deserves it. Number three. First reason we need to praise God is because it's the goal that shapes the journey and we need to keep it in our life. The second reason is God deserves it. The third reason is that praising God is something we actually need in our lives because of the way it affects us. And it's this. And hear me close. Praising God is the biblical way to confess God. Now, in our tradition... We, we, we're used to confessing our faith in the creed. In the Bible, faith is confessed in praises. Now, let me unpack for a few moment, minutes here what I mean by that. Look at Psalm 100. The old 100th, if you were raised in the Episcopal Church, you would have heard that. Psalm 100, look at verse 1. Make a joyful noise to the Lord, all the earth. Serve the Lord with gladness. Come into His presence with singing. And look at verse 3. Know that the Lord, He is God. Now, if you could read in Hebrew, that first word, Lord, in your Bible, it's likely um, written in a different way. It's lowercase caps. That's because the word there is actually the name of God, Yahweh. So it's not... The, God, the Lord is God. It's, there is one God who is the God. It's a claim. It's a confession. The God of Israel is the God. Yahweh. The one that we learn about in, in the Torah, in the first five books, and the one that Israel's experienced. This is the God. Look at Psalm 22. Verse 3. Again, this is an eruption right in the middle of one of the darkest psalms in all the Bible. Right in the middle of this cry of desperation and lament. Verse 3, yet you are wholly enthroned on the praises of Israel. Now, this is a, a remarkable statement. In every other religion that existed in this part of the world at this time, in their sanctuaries for the other religions surrounding Israel, in their sanctuaries there was an icon of their God. Think about like a Buddhist statue, right? Think of, there was an image of their God, but Israel had no icon, no statuary representation of their God. Now this, what's going on here is that while in Israel's sanctuary, an icon of their God was vacant, the phrase enthroned on the praises points to what replaces the icon for Israel. The hymns of praise were the throne that manifested God's presence. This is a remarkable thing. Our praise enthrones God in our midst. Now, people in, in our church who are struggling with their belief, they need you to enthrone God for them your children, who you are begging for them to come to faith. We have no icon. We have no statue that is that God, our God's presence. What we have in place of that is our praises that enthrone Him And through which he manifests his presence. We need to praise God because it is our biblical confession of who God is. There are people who worship with us. And some of you go through seasons of life where belief is difficult. And it is our praises that names our God, that describes our God, and that enthrones our God. When we praise God and we sing about the wonderful things He has done, we are saying no to all of the other gods that confuse us. When we, when we come into this room with all of the other gods attached to us... Now, we don't give them names like they used to. We don't call them Zeus and Athena. We call them sex and money and power. But they are gods nonetheless. We are just as polytheistic and we struggle just as much with idolatry and worshiping other gods. If you live in New York and you think you can get by without sacrificing to the god of money... It is just as powerful of a God as Mammon. People sacrifice their children to the God of money today, just like they did to Baal in the Old Testament. But we've just changed the name and sophisticated it. When we come to worship and we praise one God, we are giving a no to all the other gods. We are identifying, we are confessing our faith. Praise is the way we confess our faith. It is so dangerous, dads, when you don't sing. Do you know that one of the primary statistics about children coming into faith is dads who sing in worship? In, in, in study after study, it's been shown. And it's not just some psychological ploy. God is enthroned on the praises of his people. It is not macho in our culture to sing. But this is a place where we have to stand against our culture. And we have to act like we're Brits at a soccer game. Drunk and belted out. In England, the men sing. It's easy in that culture. In our culture, men tend to be shy about it. And it's a devious way Satan is gaining a victory. So we need to develop skillful prayers of praise because praise is the goal that shapes the journey because God deserves to be praised. And we need to praise because we need to confess God in order to grow in our faith, in order to know who our God is, in order to help those among us who are struggling in the faith. And finally, the fourth reason we need to grow and deepen in our prayer life of praise is because the world needs us to. Not only us in this room, we don't only need it, but the world needs us to. Again, look at the old 100th. Look at Psalm 100. Again, look at verse 1. Make a joyful noise to the Lord all the earth. Do you see there is a relationship between praising God and evangelism? This is a call to the whole earth. And how is in this psalm, how is Israel evangelizing? How are they doing it? Arguing? Apologetics? Door-to-door knocking? How are they doing it? They're doing it through praise. They're singing the praise of God as an invitation to the whole world. To all the places in the world that don't know God. To invite them to the true God. This is an invitation. Praise is the form of evangelism we see here. And the church, as we praise God, we are evangelizing. I come from a tradition that thinks you're not evangelizing in its extreme form and in its Achilles' Hill. That thinks you're not evangelizing unless you're doing this kind of confrontational thing on the streets. But there while we need to be courageous to share the gospel with people, we also need not underestimate the importance of our praises because it is a profound biblical attempt at evangelism. Throughout the Psalms, God, the Father of Jesus Christ, this God is the cosmic and universal ruler. And get this, the God that I said earlier, Yahweh, every time you read in the Psalms, it's Lord with lowercase caps, that God... The, the crazy thing that's going on in the Psalms. And these books were, these prayers were written and collected during a time when Israel was a minority religion in the midst of a sea of polytheism. These Psalms, they are saying that God did not become the God of the world by becoming the God of Israel. But instead, Yahweh became Israel's God because he is the God of the world and And through his work in Israel, he is claiming the world. What we as a church have for the world beyond all else is our witness to who the true God is. That is the primary thing we can offer the world. Our witness... ...of who the true God, among all the competing gods, who this God is. And as we get mature in our ability to praise this true God, two things will happen. Number one, we will learn that we can never demote our God to being just the God of Christianity... ...alongside all the other gods of all the other religions. Over and over, God, the God we worship... He owns the earth. He owns every God. They all serve Him. Psalm 100, verse 3, again, Know that the Lord, Yahweh, He is the only true God. It is He who made us. The other gods did not make us. And we are His. We are His people and the sheep of His. Our witness about Jesus is not a tentative proposal. It is true, and it is not just for us, it is for the world. The second thing that will happen as we mature in our praise is that we will learn from these psalms of praise that God's work in the world is bigger than the church. The earth is the Lord's, not just the church. The fullness of the earth, not just the ministries of the church. See, as you deepen in praise, you begin to see that God's kingdom is bigger than God's church. Now, not to demote the church, but just to keep the church in her place. God is engaged with the world in in ways other than by way of the church. This is why you don't take off your spiritual hat when you leave this room and go to your job. You're still in the kingdom work. God's work is in the, whole, the fullness of the world is His. Praising Yahweh is something we do as an evangelistic action in the midst of a general religious culture that wants any God it wants. I mean, we live in a culture that imagines the God it wants must be the true God. Praising God is is a way of evangelizing in the midst of other religions who claim that their God is God. It's a way of evangelizing in the midst of a secular culture that believes and insists there is no God. Keep him out of the marketplace of ideas. That's subjective. That doesn't belong in the academic environment. It doesn't belong in the political environment. It doesn't belong in the public space. Because it's opinion. It's not fact. Praising God is a way that we evangelize in the midst of a pluralistic culture that says all gods have their rightful place. Praising God is is what we do in a multicultural situation that relativizes all gods to cultural phenomenon. Praising God is what we do in the midst of a neo-pagan revival that is reviving the old pagan gods. Now, obviously, there are other reasons we need to praise God than these four I've brought up. There's more going on in the praise of the Psalms than these four reasons I've given. But I hope these four reasons compel you this week to grow in your praise by enrolling in the school of the Psalms. Now, let me just give you real quickly a few Psalms of praise. Psalm 8. Psalm 8 is actually easy. It's the only of all the Psalms. It's all directly, directly addressed to God. You don't even have to change any of the language. You just memorize it and pray it to God. Now, just like last week, this week I encourage you to set aside a specific time and a specific place and have a specific focus. And I invite you this week that when you go to that time, look, if you failed miserably last week, just get yourself up. Right? And just go for it again. Set a time, children, teenagers, all of us, adults, a specific time every day this week in the same place and have a focus, and I encourage you this week for it to be the Psalms of praise. Psalm 8, Psalm 24, Psalm 100, 113, 117, 145 to the end. All right? 8, 24, 100, 113. 117, 145 to the end. And when you do this, some of them you just pray directly, some of them you'll read and you'll respond to it in praise. Some of them don't work to turn straight. Some of them you just change the words from, you know, you just change the pronouns. Some of them you summarize in your own words. Lots of different ways you can do this. It's a skill. You you can only develop it by practicing it. Now let me finish with this one last thing. Praise is important when you feel like it and when you don't. Psalm 8, smack after Psalm 3, 4, 5, 6, and 7. <laughs> Praise is not incompatible with doubt and distress and trouble and weakness. Praise is like tuning up the orchestra before the concert. When you need it, that's I mean, you do it. It's like digging channels in a waterless land in order that when the rain comes, it can be collected. Now, there are happy moments even now in this life when a few trickles creep along the dry beds and some people have the fortune of this being the regular character of their life. But listen, if praise is the end of the journey, you need to dig channels now so that you can be ready when you arrive. You praise when you feel like it and you don't. Sometimes it just takes more work and more faith. But still you need to do it. Will you close your eyes and bow your heads?